Hello, and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, or IDF, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people diagnosed with primary immunodeficiency diseases. You are listening to one of several special episodes focusing on young adults. In this series, we are going to be diving into topics that matter most to young adults living with primary immunodeficiencies, or PI. And now, let's begin. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode, Taking Control of Your Healthcare Management, part of IDF's Young Adult Podcast Series. I'm your host, John Boyle. Before we begin, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, I'm Margaret Mary Conger. I'm Senior Patient Engagement Associate with CSL Bearing. I just want to first thank the IDF for inviting me to welcome all of you on behalf of CSL Bearing. At CSL Bearing, we really are driven by our promise to the PI community to develop products, programs, and resources that serve your needs. We're really excited to be a partner on this latest educational effort that the IDF is putting together, so I hope that you enjoy this podcast. Thanks so much, Margaret Mary. Young adults with PI must develop independent disease self-management and learn to communicate effectively with their healthcare team to transition from pediatric to adult-oriented healthcare systems. Those young adults who best manage their PI are the ones who find a balanced approach to healthcare and to life. Today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Heimel. Dr. Heimel graduated from New Jersey Medical School, where she also completed a combined internal medicine and pediatrics residency. She completed immunology training at the NIH in 2009. She is currently an assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and medical director of the Day Medicine Unit at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Among her areas of expertise is the appropriate transition of care from pediatric to adulthood. Our discussion today will cover the steps that young adults should take to become more independent, strong, and healthy individuals. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Heimel. Thank you, John, for that really kind introduction, and I'm so happy to be here uh, to talk about uh, taking control of your health care for young adults. It is so important and, and I think a wonderful topic for us to discuss on this podcast. Well, we do appreciate your being here, so let's just jump right into the questions. Now, in terms of kind of adult healthcare 101, it's hard enough being healthy and just transitioning into adulthood in normal circumstances, but when you add a rare disease, it turns it into a whole new ballgame. Although teens may know a lot about their conditions, what would you say are the healthcare challenges as they move into adulthood and towards greater independence that you think that they should be aware of? So I think uh, what I've seen my adolescent, late teen, and young adult patients uh, struggle with the most is how to handle the time management piece of this. Uh, In particular, um, trying to handle the, the stressors of becoming more independent in school, social activities, et cetera, 
with the added need to fit in doctor's appointments and treatments that their peers are not. I've found that for some of my uh, patients, they also uh, face challenges in terms of acceptance from either their uh, school or the, um, their employer as they are finishing school. And as their physician, I feel it's part of my job to help them understand what resources they have to use to enable them to have accommodations made for their uh, health conditions. So I hear what you're saying there, but uh, realistically, when you talk about these time management challenges, is it that they're in some cases forgetting to uh, to make their appointments? Is it that they are uh, trying to do them kind of too late for what works for maybe you and and the healthcare system that you're part of? What 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 are those challenges? kind of really look like? What, what is it that you're seeing uh, on a day-to-day level that you kind of would hope and wish that they would be doing maybe a little bit differently? I think for patients who are in high school or early college, understanding how to strike a balance between their schoolwork, potentially, you know, part-time jobs or uh, extracurricular activities and their need for treatment is one of the challenges and understanding the complexities that go into needing to see them on a regular basis um, and the availability of providers that, that they need to be cognizant of that to some degree and can't wait until the last minute to try and schedule uh, appointments. There's also for patients who are on reoccurring therapies such as immunoglobulin, I think working in the time to either go to an infusion center for IVIG, schedule a nurse to come for IVIG, or to self-administer subcutaneous immunoglobulin is sometimes a challenge for patients with very busy school work and extracurricular schedules. And this is particularly true in patients in late high school and early college when their parents are starting to loosen uh, how much of that they are doing for them. One of the things that I found to be quite helpful for my patients who are in this situation is to remind them of the power of using their their cell phone. Um, On almost every cell phone platform and most patients at this point do have access to, to, to a mobile phone. They can use reminders in their calendars to help uh, jog their memory to call and schedule an appointment, not when the appointment needs to happen the next day, but a few weeks in advance. Um, they can also use the, the calendar scheduling to remind them to give medications or to schedule their next infusion. And I found that patients who I gave that tip, which is fairly simple, found uh, that it really did help quite a bit with their time management, um, and they didn't have to leave things to be reliant on their memory. In terms of transitions and maybe the timing of transitions and and kind of dealing with this movement from uh, your parents calling the shots to maybe you calling the shots, uh, many medical institutions that 
these uh, uh, young people are already part of uh, have got guidelines regarding exactly when they should begin their transition to uh, more adult-oriented uh, care and, and moving to those sorts of doctors. Uh, and that may be 16 or 18 or 21 or, or even uh, older when that shift occurs. In terms of preparing them, uh, and dealing with that inevitable time where they are going to have to take more on themselves, uh, what do you think that young adults uh, should be asking their current healthcare team regarding this transition process, and what skills are important to make a smooth transition? How do you coach the uh, the young people that you're dealing with in in your clinic? So. I usually start when patients, I start very young. I usually start talking to patients about taking more responsibility for their own care around the time that they're starting high school or late in middle, middle school. So around age 14 is when I start to talk about, have you been taking your medicine and try and have them go through their medication list rather than directing all the clinic questions to their parents. I try and talk with patients about how they have been feeling, both medically and psychologically, about their current health state. Because I think that having a rapport with your provider, and I think that for me, having a rapport with my patient that's longstanding um, helps when we get to the point where there are transitions that need to happen, or if they're struggling with life decisions, it makes us easier makes it easier for us to have those conversations go smoothly. If your provider is not initiating the conversations themselves, I would recommend to patients to try and initiate the conversation as soon as you yourself have a, have concerns about how to find a new provider when you're moving, or you know you're going to go through a major life change, you too could initiate that conversation with your provider. Um, for patients who are on subcutaneous immunoglobulin, I, by the time they're in high school, really encourage them to be an active participant in the infusions. So whether this means that they are setting up the tubing or placing the needles or, or removing the needles themselves, but some aspect of starting to be more aware of the steps uh, of giving an infusion so that they don't feel that they have to necessarily be close to home to have a, a parent give it to them forever, I think also helps to instill a sense of confidence for um, these patients Many hadn't thought of um, doing the treatments themselves, but then when they come back six months later, are so proud and so excited to tell me what their incremental change has been. And this also helps the parents start to feel comfortable with relinquishing some responsibility to these teenage patients. For young adult patients, um, I think that if you, for example, maybe hadn't been following with the same doctor for years, or maybe it's a new diagnosis of immunodeficiency that happened in high school or later, I think making sure that you feel comfortable enough with the doctor managing your PI to have conversations about your long-term plans, um, ab about um, your social habits, you know, about um, 
how well you sleep at night, about whether you drink or whether you smoke or whether you're using any drugs, if you're having sex, who you're having sex with, having those conversations with your doctor so that we can help you to make smart decisions to keep you healthy is really important. And so there's a personality match that you need to find. And doctors won't, you know, be upset if you were to say, I'm sorry, but I just don't feel that we click the way I'd like to. Can you give me a referral to someone else? You should ask that question if you're not comfortable, or you can use resources available through the IDF and uh, other organizations to, to find a different provider. But I think it's very important to find someone you feel you have a good match with and who truly can listen to you and help you through your issues. Are, would any of your advice or any of your expectations maybe change uh, for some of the, uh, the young people who have uh, some of the more uh, rare, even within the rare, uh, uh, diagnoses uh, in the PI world, uh, those who have combined immune deficiencies or uh, ones that uh, folks may be even less familiar with in the, uh, the medical world? So I think... Um I think those are good questions. I think there are a couple of subpopulations of primary immunodeficiency that probably do uh, merit a, a different kind of relationship. And so I'll, I'll speak to a couple of them. In general, um, patients who received hematopoietic stem cell transplant um, early in life, um, those patients do need follow-up through a survivorship program of one kind or another. Um, and the degree of frequency will probably vary depending on what conditioning regimens may have been used for the transplant and on the initial indication for transplant and how well the immune system has reconstituted after transplant. So I think if you are a patient who was treated with stem cell transplant initially for your primary immunodeficiency and now have no immune deficiency issues per se, uh, but do need late follow-up from having had that treatment to correct the immune deficiency, it will be very important to talk with the team that you are currently following with. Most often that will either be a survivorship program or an immunologist or both at the institution that did your initial transplant or an institution that your uh, primary treating group had helped refer you to um, because of a geographic change during childhood. Um, I, you know, from my experience, I have a joint bone marrow transplant immunology clinic that I uh, work in. And when patients are making their transition to adult care, we transition them to both uh, an adult um, oncology survivorship group right now for late effects uh, that may be from their chemotherapy exposure for conditioning, but also for immunology um, late monitoring uh, to make sure that the immune reconstitution is maintained over their lifetime. I think also for patients who were treated with stem cell transplant, it's important to realize that the genetic abnormality that necessitated the stem cell transplant is not corrected in any cells 
other than the immune cells. So if you've had a bone marrow transplant for severe combined immunodeficiency, for example, um, you are still a carrier of that disease in all other cells of the body, including, um, you know, uh, germline cells. So, um, you know, your uh, sperm or, or eggs. And so there is a risk for uh, future generations to be affected. So considering an ability to have genetic counseling as you're getting older and thinking about child planning if you've had a bone marrow transplant is another part of the transition of care for young adults because that's the period of time when this, you know considerations for, for having children of your own often come up. I think the other group of patients that you mentioned, John, are those who have more rare forms of primary immunodeficiency where um, novel therapies are, are being de developed um, as we speak and are being implemented at a very rapid pace. And so for patients who may be on biologics or who have um, more rare forms of primary immunodeficiency, I think it's very important to try to have a direct referral from your current immunologist for transition of care and ask that your current immunologist uh, speak with or have some communication with the new immunologist who will assume your care um, as, as you graduate uh, from a pediatric practice. Well, Dr. Heimel, this is, uh, this is great and, and uh, I appreciate kind of all the insight that you've uh, given us here, but let's take a break here and then we'll talk some more in a moment. Okay, sounds good. IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, including your health, insurance, education, and relationships. You get support from your family and friends, but IDF can provide you with advice and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to young adulthood and PI. Please visit us at www.primaryimmune.org for tips, advice, and support. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Heimel, who's discussing the transition of healthcare from childhood to adulthood. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, John. Now, We've talked a bit about transitioning and transitioning uh, teens such as the ones that you see uh, who have PI to adult uh, care services is, is complex. It's not just you, you know, pat them on the back and send them on their way with a checklist. Uh, it requires coordination and, and also just the continuity, making sure that there's nothing uh, uh, that lapses there in terms of their health care. The quality uh, of the transition process not only impacts the special health care needs uh, that they may have, but also probably the psychosocial development. Would you agree, disagree, uh, and maybe give your thoughts on that? Sure. You know, I absolutely think that uh, an effective uh, and probably gradual transition has, in my experience, been met with the best uh, clinical success and the least psychosocial impact. So I think in an ideal world, uh, the best way to make transitions, even during uh, childhood, frankly, if, if someone is moving, um, but particularly when you're going through the tumultuous period of 
um, the teenage years and, and early adulthood where so much is changing in your life is to have a gradual transition from your pediatric provider to an adult provider. At my institution, one of the ways we do this is by uh, having the adult providers sometimes join us in the pediatric clinic, not to have an actual clinic visit with the patient, um, but just to be able to have a, a couple appointments where the patients have an introduction to adult immunologists with, within the same institution. This is particularly uh, useful for those patients who are geographically staying close by, of course. I think it becomes a little more tricky when you have a patient who is moving uh, you know, from, let's say, Philadelphia, where I am, to uh, New York. We're certainly not going to be able to have both of those doctors necessarily be in the same room uh, for visits. What I've done in that situation is I will still um, have the patients follow with me, um, but I will tell them to start having some appointments with a, a list of doctors that either they bring to me, uh, you know, of those that are allowed by their insurance, um, or if, if they'd like direction from me, a list of providers um, that I'm aware of that have an interest or knowledge base in, in primary immunodeficiency. And this is particularly true with those patients, um, as you mentioned before, with more rare forms of primary immunodeficiency. I think that this gradual transition model or even a model of them um, making a, a sudden transition to the new uh, provider, but then being able to come back periodically um, to me has helped some patients who are very nervous about making the change. So I, to give a kind of more concrete example, I recently had a patient who was college-aged um, who had been following with me for a specific antibody deficiency and needed to relocate. But um, we had a very good relationship, and uh, this patient um, was understandably anxious about having to establish that rapport with a new provider, but I wouldn't be able to continue to be uh, writing for infusions in a state where I don't practice. So we set up a situation whereby the patient is going to the new provider um, and has transitioned management of, of care uh, to that provider, but still comes back periodically, and, and it varies because I'm not prescribing the therapies, to maybe once a year or every other year just to check in. Um, and I think it, it gives that patient the reassurance um, that uh, someone who has known them for a long time is, is okay with the way things have been transitioned. Um, and so that partnering has worked very well. Um, I have uh, another patient who I did that with where they've now completely transitioned to the other provider. And, it, and usually in, in, that, in the cases where there's been a complete transition um, completed, we usually do that over a period of two to three years um, just to, you know, whenever the patient feels completely comfortable and that they're in a good space, that's when we say, okay, you yeah. It's, you know, you can, you can go and you can contact us with questions, but now that you're uh, approaching uh, 
full adulthood, not so much young adulthood anymore, it makes sense for the full transition to be complete. So we don't have a, a set time that uh, we would say, oh, no, you know, you're, you're 25, we can't follow you anymore. Um, but we, you know, try to encourage a gradual transition so that by the time patients are at a stage where they may de be developing more adult-related issues, um, such as pregnancy, for as a for instance, or um, complications of um, certainly other uh, chronic medical conditions, like uh, you know, once we truly get to the middle age of high blood pressure or cholesterol and those sorts of things, seeing an adult provider who's used to dealing with adult issues is very important. And so, uh, you know, making that transition well in advance of the time that you're going to have a potential to be developing adult medical concerns is important. Well, one thing in terms of preparing uh, someone uh, uh, to kind of take control of, the, of their health care uh, and then saying, hey, you're, you're now calling more of the shots. It's no longer mom or dad, especially after you're 18. Uh, one thing that we do hear about uh, not infrequently, is uh, someone who, you know, is independent now, they're maybe 18 plus, and they say, well, you know, I'm tired of this therapy, uh, and, and boy, I, I'm, I'm going to try to go without it. I'm, you know, I, I've never understood why I had to have it, because maybe they were diagnosed before they could even really remember the, uh, the infections or whatever it may uh, have been. Uh, do any of your patients talk with you uh, ahead of time about things like that, or when you sense something like that coming, um, how do you grapple with that? Uh, you you want to obviously give them the best medical advice that you can, um, you know, but, you know, obviously some of them want to, uh, you know, spin that wheel, it seems. Uh, how, how do you deal with those situations? Right. Well, I think it... it the answer to that question very much varies depending on the form of primary immunodeficiency that we're talking about. Um, but I think in general, if the reason why a patient wants to stop treatment is that they don't understand their disease or they don't understand why they need the treatment, then my first uh, approach to, the, to that situation is to certainly, you know, have a good, you know, have a good listening discussion session um, and to provide them with educational materials about what their form of primary immunodeficiency is. You know, what do we know about long-term outcomes? What do we know about how the treatment will help them? Um, and when patients are expressing a desire to require, to not be on treatment or to not uh, continue with treatment, what I will often do is say, let's, let's continue to have a, after discussing the, you know, risks of abruptly stopping treatment, you know, as you're an adult, it does become your choice, um, but it probably isn't the best long-term choice to abruptly stop therapy for immunodeficiency. So what I will typically do is if I'm concerned that the patient may want to just stop the therapy regardless of what our conversation is, um, I'll ask them to come for more frequent clinic visits so we can check in on how they're doing. Um, I think that in, in some patients, uh, if they've never had a, if they were diagnosed, for example, 
uh, with um, a, a, you know, kind of recurrent infection and had a low uh, response to um, a vaccine and are just on an antibiotic prophylaxis um, because of that. So that's a very specific situation. That patient, I may say, okay, if it's the summer, let's take a holiday from being on therapy and see how you do clinically. Um, whereas a patient who has a genetically, you know, confirmed X-linked chronic granulomatous disease um, who has not had a bone marrow transplant, I really uh, discourage those patients from taking a drug holiday from their prophylaxis because we know the rates of infection and life-threatening infection are very high if a CGD patient is off prophylaxis. So I think the conversation has to be um, custom to the immunodeficiency, um, but I think having an active conversation with the immunologist, in my experience, most of the patients have, in the long run, ended up deciding to, to continue with their therapy, maybe not taking it as, as regularly as it is prescribed, but nobody's perfect. And um, with time and, again, trying to use those cell phones as a reminder uh, for in the ca- using the calendar reminders in a cell phone um, really has helped many of my patients kind of realize that it's, it's not so hard. The other situation um, that I've come across not as frequently but is still really important and, and something we should talk about are patients who are depressed about dealing with a, a chronic medical condition that is expected to be lifelong. And I think having that conversation with your immunologist is important, um, not because in, the immunologist is necessarily going to be an effective psychologist or counselor, but I will. I have resources and most immunologists who are part of a major medical center are going to have resources to help deal with depression or anxiety um, surrounding having a chronic medical illness. Um, And I think it's important to try to realize whether the desire to stop the therapy is truly because you just don't understand why you're on it, you don't like taking the medicine, or are you you know, feeling negatively about yourself um, and depressed. Um, We certainly would not want to allow someone who is feeling depressed and and may even want to have self-harm go off and and not be able to continue their therapy because of underlying psychiatric disease. Uh, Dr. Heimel, this has been uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, But knowing that we have... uh, probably a combination of young people uh, who'll be listening to this as well as to their parents, uh, kind of looking at this issue from from two different sides. Uh, Any final pieces of advice, uh, you know, aside from kind of what we've covered or or a a quick summary of the things that you think that a young person who is going through this transition or will be should hear, and maybe the parent uh, who is concerned about a transition that may be coming up? Any final thoughts? Sure. Um, so I think um, to take to tackle the the thoughts about you know how can parents help their teenager transition to young adult um, in the context of having primary immunodeficiency because that's something we haven't spent as much time talking about. I think 
um, parents are a really important partner um, in helping this transition to go smoothly. Um, and so I think for parents, um, one of the hardest pieces of this is uh, relinquishing some of the control of the of scheduling the appointments and getting the patient uh, their therapy. Um, but I think the young adults who I see have the greatest success in terms of their own self-care and self-management are those whose parents, as almost as soon as they start uh, to come for visits in high school, allow their children to be the ones who answer my questions first. So when I ask, how many infections have you had in the last six months? How many times have you been on an antibiotic? Letting that question be directed to the child and certainly helping them out um, to have the, you know, the answers or to know about their clinical history is, is really, really helpful in helping um, a young adult or teenager to internalize the need for their um, level of responsibility on this issue to be higher as they're getting older. Um, similarly, as patients are getting into college, um, having the patients be the ones who receive lab results um, or at least have the, both the parent and the patient be the one who are receiving lab results so that the patients start to understand the language um, with which we talk about cell counts or immune protein levels or liver function or kidney function, it allows them to be informed consumers as adults. So I think that's the, some of the best teaching that parents can do to help their patients, or help their children rather, uh, transition effectively. In terms of the young adults, I think uh, the, the most important thing that I would say for young adults to do is to, in high school or the early 20s, really start to figure out your time management plan. Um, this will help for life in general, of course, but when you have added things uh, that are needed over the course of weeks or months or years, looking ahead to your schedule and saying, okay, I know that in six months from now, I need to schedule an appointment with my immunologist for a check-in and putting a reminder to schedule that appointment into your phone so that you don't forget and it doesn't become an emergency of we need you to come in tomorrow because your off is going to expire um, will ease your transition. Um, so you use reminders to help you with time management and then the other, I think, biggest takeaway that I would want to uh, make sure that young adults listening to this podcast really take to heart is that the most important thing you're going to do is find a provider that you have a good rapport with and that you're comfortable talking about any issue of your physical or mental health with. Because once you have that relationship, you enable your doctor to provide you with the best possible care. And even if you're... Um, physical or mental uh, health concern isn't one that can be managed by the immunologists themselves, they are almost always going to be able to find somebody to refer you to to help with issues that are beyond the scope of what an immunologist will actively manage themselves. 
Uh, well, Dr. Heimel, uh, I just want to thank you f uh, so much for your time, uh, for your uh, for your experiences that you've shared here, and, and for the uh, just the the wisdom and the caring uh, about. Uh, you know, both the, the folks that you treat directly as well as giving us a chance to, to share some of these insights uh, with the broader PI community, those who uh, are going to be going through a transition and, of course, parents and others who care for those, uh, those young people. So, uh, Dr. Heimel, thank you once again uh, for all the time you've given us here today. It's absolutely been my pleasure, John. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've, I've really enjoyed being able to uh, share my perspective. And many thanks to our listeners for being with us here today. We hope that you'll join us for the entire series as we explore the concerns of young adults as well as other episodes that would be of interest to the PI community. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you are never alone. There's always people here who want to help. We all just have to find each other. Take care. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. The Young Adult Series is supported by a charitable donation from CSL Bearing. Thank you to CSL Bearing for their support. Also, special thanks to Bryson Kemp for scoring this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be pushed to your device automatically. And rate us on iTunes, as that will help others discover this podcast series. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.